Dan Rothstein in his book entitled, Make Just One Change, Teach Students to Ask Their Own Questions, speaks about asking questions with this. He says, coming up with the right question involves vigorously thinking through the problem, investigating it from various angles, turning closed questions into open-ended ones, and prioritizing which are the most important questions to get at the heart of the matter. We've been underestimating how well our kids can think. Rothstein said in a recent discussion on the talk show forum, he said this, We see consistently that there are three outcomes. One is that students are more engaged. Second, they take more ownership, which for a teacher, this is a huge thing. And the third outcome is that they learn more. We see better quality work. Now, I'm going to take that phrase, or that, that, that statement that he made, and I'm going to apply that to your Christian life. In fact, we're going to look in Mark chapter 12 at a, at a guy that comes and asks a question. Now, I believe that a good student is a good question asker. Okay? And so if you don't have questions when you go to study, like when you go to learn something, if you don't have questions, you probably won't come away with a lot of answers. So therefore, I want you to become a student of asking questions. Ask questions about the Bible. Sometimes we hesitate to do that, don't we? We might think, think that we're questioning God's integrity or we're expressing lack of faith. But I want you to put a little phrase in the back of your mind today, and I want you to put the phrase reasoned faith. Okay, Reasoned faith. A lot of people today think that faith is just something that you lock into, something that you just accept. And if somebody says it, okay, I have faith in it, I'll buy that. But I want you to start reasoning your faith. I want you to have reasons for why you believe. I want you to have reasons for why you believe there is a God. I want you to have reasons for why you believe the Bible is true. I want you to have reasons why you believe that you're going to go to heaven someday when you die. Okay, I want you to have reasons for that because that's what faith is built on. God did not ask us to follow him blindly. Now, there's some questions that we probably can't have answers to, and therefore we have to accept those. But there are a lot of questions that we can reason and come to a reasonable answer about. Now, we're going to find ourselves in Mark chapter 12. Now, there's this young guy, he's a teacher, and he, he's really impressed with what Jesus is doing. He's, re, he's impressed with how Jesus responds to questions. He's impressed with the answers he gives. He's impressed with how Jesus debates with the people who are opposed to him. He's really impressed with that, and it helps him to formulate a question. Now, if you were a fledgling young teacher and you wanted to find out what is the essence of the matter that I'm really interested in, what question would you ask? Well, he comes up with a question. He comes up with the question, what's the most important commandment? If there's one that I need to really obey, what's the number one commandment? So let's read in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Okay, Jesus is debating with some of the people that are adversaries to him. Now, he notices that Jesus had given them a good answer, and he asked him, he asked Jesus this question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He says, he elaborates on it. He says, and now there's a second one. 
And the second is this. The second most important commandment is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, if you read this in, Mark, in Matthew rather, chapter 22, uh, it says at the end of that, he says, the law and the prophets, everything in the law and the prophets hangs on these two things. Everything that the prophets told us how to live, everything that the law describes that we should do hangs on these two commands. Number one, love God. Number two, love other people. Everything in the Christian environment, everything in the Christian realm hangs on those two things, loving God and loving other people. Now, let's break this down. How many of you would consider yourself great lovers of God? Don't raise your hands. Okay, great lovers of God. Because this is what faith is really all about. Remember last week when we talked about building Christian character. Christian character begins with what? Knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing him. Knowing him and then emulating him. Today we find that what's faith built on? Faith is built on loving God. In fact, he uses a thing here in verse number 30. Uh, actually, back in verse 29, when he, when he answers, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You'll find that back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning of the, of the children of Israel's quest for God. And we find that this is described as the Hebrew Shema. In fact, the, the children of Israel would recite this in the morning when they got up. They'd recite it in the evening when they went to bed. The Lord our God is one. We should love the Lord with our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Now, Jesus adds strength on there, the original heart, soul, and mind. Now, they would say that in the morning. They would say it in the evening because that's what described their faith. Their faith, their trust in God was built on these three things. Jesus adds a fourth, and we're going to break that down and take a look at it because the teacher here wanted to know what's the essence of Christian faith. How do I build that? What's the key ingredient to it? And Jesus responds with four ways. Now, we're not going to look at these in order. So uh, I've kind of rearranged them so that they would make kind of a logical progression for you, which might make it easier for you to remember. So we're going to start with, in number one, how is faith built? By loving God with all my mind. With all my mind. Now, most of you had, at the beginning of the service, said that you're great thinkers. Okay, we think about things, we reason things, we come to a conclusion. Now, most of the people that are opposed to the Christian faith, they believe that Christians just follow blindly, that there's really no reason, no rhyme, no reason for why they believe. And that's why I want you to have reasons for why you believe, because that tells me and that will tell other people, you've thought about this. It's not just that you've accepted the, the, the union line. It's not just that you've accepted what people say. It's that you've thought about it. You've come to a reasonable conclusion about what you're thinking. Now, it's believed in some circles. In fact, I'm going to say in some Christian circles that this reasoning process is kind of antithetical or opposed to faith. Faith, we believe, is just something they say it, we believe it, we do it. But I want you to know that reasoning in faith has, has become very important because it will tell you why you believe what you believe. Now, most of us could say what we believe, but we would, might say it with a little bit of hesitancy because we're not sure if it's right or not because we haven't thought about it. We don't have a reason for articulating our belief. Now, uh, I believe that faith consists of, and it requires thought. I believe that you have to think about faith in order to truly have faith. Now, 
Uh, and I believe, too, another thing. The reason that there's not much faith today is because there's really not much thinking today. Have you seen our political arena? You know, there's not a lot of thinking that goes on, is there? There's this rhetoric that goes on, and there's these violent responses, and there's this stuff that may have been said and may not have been said, but we believe that it's true, and therefore we jump to conclusions, and we don't think about things, and we don't engage people in debate. We don't say, really, is that what you believe? We fly off the handle, come to conclusions, and I'm going to say it happens frequently on both sides of the table. Now, Norman Cousins, he's a great thinker of our age, he says this, our age is not the age of the meditative man. You know, because when you think about something, when somebody asks you for an opinion, you've got one right away, don't you? You know what would behoove us to do more often? It might say, I don't know. Let me think about that. Let me think about that before I come up with some kind of an opinion, some kind of conclusion. He says, our age is not the age of the meditative man. It's a sprinting shoving age. Daily, new antidotes for contemplation spring into being, a leap out from store counters. How many of you have ever read the the little tabloids that are there by the the checkout counter? And it's always got, you know, there's some that are about people, and then there's some that's about stuff. You know, did you know there's aliens around us? You know, there's stuff that, you know, man, if you check out the, the National Enquirer, any of those kinds of tabloids, there's a, just stuff out there. And pretty soon we see that often enough. And what do we believe? We believe that's true. Now, I'm going to suggest to you also that we live in a day, uh, an age of social media. And social media, a lot of times, dictates what we believe. Did you know that today most people get their news from social media? Did you know that? Now, where do you get your news? You get it from TV. You get it from, how many of you read the newspaper? Okay, not many people read the newspaper anymore uh, because, you know, gee, that's too hard. You know, I I need to listen to it. I need to hear it. I need to hear it on the radio. I need to see it on TV. I need to do that. Uh, But we don't do much investigation because most of the investigation has been done for us. You know, when it comes to news media, they've already come to a conclusion, they've come to the answer, and they're dispensing that to you. You don't have to think about anything anymore. And so we get this, this age where we don't meditate on anything anymore, and we don't ruminate over it, we don't, we don't think about it. Immanuel Kant, he's a great philosopher, he said that there are three questions all thinking people have to wrestle through and come up with a working answer if you're going to live a thoughtful life. Okay? And number one, how can I know what's real? How can I know what's real? How many of you are familiar with the term fake news? Okay, you know, you know, how do I know what's real anymore? You know, and I'm not just saying that, you know, there are people that are attacking maybe the president, but I'm just wondering from any source, how do you know if it's true or not? Just because people say it doesn't mean it's true. How many of you have ever believed it's true because it's on the Internet? You know, you know, I don't know. You know, how do we know what's true? A second question that he says we ought to ask and have an answer to is what ought I to do that's right? What should I do that's right? No, not what should I do in response to maybe people, you know, uh, badgering me or hurting me or whatever. But what should I do that would be that would bring something right into the world? What what can I do that brings right into the world? Okay, and he asks a third question. And the third question is, uh, what can I hope for? Or what can I live for? What's the end goal of my life? He says, thinking people need to think about that stuff. Now, most of us want somebody to tell us what those answers are, right? 
Yeah. Uh, today in school, uh, if you go take a math class, you really don't have to know very much math. Did you know that? You just have to know how to operate a calculator. And it'll tell me what the right answer is. Okay? Okay, don't get, uh, don't get Rhonda started. I can see she's got a, a beef with that. Pardon me? No. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, our culture says that thinking people, you know, are philosophers. And so, therefore, the answers to those questions that Immanuel Kant says we need to have the answers to, let's just leave that to the philosophers. And whatever they come up with, if I like what they say, then that's for me. And we don't think about things. Now, Jesus gives words of wisdom to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. And and they're worried. They're a little bit worried about, hey, what's going to happen in the future? Anybody, anybody here ever worry about what's going to happen in the future? Okay, yeah, we, we, you know, we can be world-class warriors, I know that. And he says this, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your fed, heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Now, I want you to circle that word, look, because that word, look, is really the word, consider. Now, to look at it with meaning, with understanding, with introspection, with, with um, evaluation, it means in the Greek to process information by giving consideration to various aspects. Let's do that this morning, just for a minute. Let's think about this scripture. Now, what is it that he's talking about? Okay, help me. Okay, he's talking about worry. And what is he using as the focal point? Birds. Okay, he's using birds. Okay, so let's consider birds. Okay, let's think about birds. Uh, are birds fairly reasonable animals? No, they are not. They, they, yeah, and okay, the, the birds don't reason. They respond to stimuli, okay? So they're not reasoning beings like we are. We say, oh, well, gee, that didn't work. Let's try something else. They don't and, and he's going to describe them. They do not sow or reap, okay? So they don't plant plants so that they can come later, reap them, and eat them. They don't do that, okay? They don't make plans ahead for what they're going to eat, okay? He's, he says, number two, uh, they don't store stuff. They don't store it away in barns, do they? So they're not getting food, and we need to be squirrels, and we need to stow it away and for a rainy day. They don't do that, okay? Now, it comes to a conclusion. It says, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Okay? They don't sow anything. They don't reap anything. They don't store anything. So not, they don't have anything saved away for a rainy day. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. Okay, let's consider that. Let's apply that to our lives. How many of you have savings accounts? How many of you have IRAs? How many of you have all this stuff prepared for a rainy day? Yeah, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have that. But what I'm saying is that we need to depend on the one who gives us the resources rather than the resources themselves. And so we need to reason with that. How does savings account, you know, how does that interact with faith? How does that, you know, and again, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a savings account. But I am saying that we need to think about why we have a savings account. What if I run out? Well, if I run out, what does God do for me? Will he provide for me? We need to reason that out. Now, here's a scripture that talks about that. Matthew 6, 26 and 27. Says, he says this. Now, the, the birds are taken care of. They don't store anything. They don't reap anything. They don't plant anything. They don't do any of that stuff. 
God takes care of them. Now, he makes the leap now to apply that to us. He says, are you not much more valuable than they? Are you not more important to God than the birds that he takes care of? Now, what's the answer to that question? Let's reason it. The implication is that the answer is yes, correct? The answer is yes. So then he says, then he brings it back to our worry. And really what he asks here is, why do you worry then? Can you add a single hour to your life? No, you can't. So therefore, why do you worry about stuff? God will take care of you. He wants us to think about that and come to a reasoned faith, a reasoned response, a reasoned answer that says, okay, I've got it figured out. God takes care of the birds. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store. And he's going to take care of me too because I'm more important than they are. Ah, Now, I hope that gives you some comfort. I hope it gives you some reasoned faith. Why do, you, why do you believe God's going to take care of you? Because he takes care of the birds and he's going to take care of you. That's the reason. That's what he told us right here. Most of my, my worry, though, isn't about myself. It's about others. Oh, okay. Then, okay. How many of you worry about other people? Okay. Why? How much control do you have over other people? None. Zero, zip, zilch, nada. Okay. What is worry? Worry is what we do when we can't do anything. Because if you could do something, you would do it, right? You would do something about it, but you know you can't. So, gosh, I'm going to worry. I'm going to worry. What if they, what if they, okay. The person that you have control over is you. Don't worry about other people. Don't worry. Because is God capable of taking care of them? Oh, let's, let's, let's back up. Is God capable of taking care of you? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Therefore, is God capable of taking care of the people you worry about? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, what, what else might we worry about? We might worry about? Money. Gee, we might worry about money. Okay. And back here, we come. It, God takes care of the birds, right? You got food. You got shelter. They've got feathers. Okay. You need food, shelter, and clothing, right? God's going to take care of that. That's our reasoned faith. Okay? Is there a reason to worry about anything? Worry is antithetical to faith. It's the opposite of faith. Faith says, I trust God, and if he's going to take care of me, I know that he's going to provide for me, I know he's going to do whatever. Therefore, I don't need to worry, because worry is what I do when I can't do anything else, and I don't think God's going to take care of it. That's worry. So don't worry. In fact, Paul tells us, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. So therefore, have reasons for why you don't worry. Now, I'm going to give you the number one reason why you do worry. You don't trust God. There's the bottom line. Okay? You don't trust God, so therefore you worry. You Okay, now is God sovereign? Can God protect you from anything and everything? He can, right? I remember when I was, I had cancer surgery and, uh, you know, some elders of the church came, staff members of the church came and they prayed for me. And I said, oh man, thanks you guys. That was, that was very cool of you to come and do that. And they said, well, don't you want to pray? I said, well, you know, it's not like I waited till this morning of surgery to pray about this, but yeah, I'll pray for your benefit, you know, and so I prayed, and here was my simple prayer. Here I am, God, do with me as you see fit. 
you know, if, if this surgery ends my life, so be it. If this surgery brings bad results, so be it. But whatever happens here, let it be for your glory and your good. Okay, now that's, that's what I would say is trust. That's faith. And I'm not patting myself on the back or anything like that. But I think when we get to where we worry about stuff, we forget the bigger picture that God wants to be made known through our circumstances. So have reasons for why you believe that. Have reasons. Who's the most important person in the universe? God. Whose story is the most important story in the universe? Who is the most important person for people to know? Now, I've noticed that when we, when we answered those questions, none of, them, none of us said, me. God uses me to make himself known. Okay? He makes himself known through my life. And he makes himself known through the faith that I express during life's most difficult moments. He doesn't usually get made known when things are going rosy for you. He doesn't usually get made known when you win the lotto. You know, we might give him credit for that, but, but most of the time, you know, I find that people that win the lotto, their lives go down the drain, you know, because they get messed up in all kinds of things that they are not prepared for. So God might be protecting you by not letting you win the lotto. Okay, think about that. Okay? You know, he might, he might be saving your faith because what, what would you have faith in if you had several hundred million dollars? You might trust that money a little more than you trust God, and you might not have a need for God anymore, and you, and you get disoriented. So therefore, I want you to have reasons for why you believe what you believe. Now, um, if you have faith in Jesus, you have hopefully, and I'm going to say hopefully, you've made some reasoned statements. Okay? I th- hope that you have considered, that you've thought about, that you've analyzed the love of God. Think about the love of God. You know, I'm, when I think about the love of God, I am blown away. That he would consider us worthy of his supreme sacrifice of his one and only son, Jesus. I'm blown away by that. And when people sacrifice for me, what does that cause me to do? Cause me to love them, appreciate them, have gratitude for what they've done. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So therefore, I hope you've considered the love of God. I hope you've considered the testimony of Jesus, that you've read through the Gospels and that you said, you know what? Here's what Jesus stood for. Here's what Jesus did. Here's how he interacted with people. And I've considered that, and I think that's a life more worthy of life than the life that I am currently living. Okay, I hope you've considered a third thing. And I hope that you've considered uh, the beauty and the reliability of the Bible. I ask a lot of Christians, why do you believe the Bible? And I'll be honest with you, most Christians don't have a good answer. You know, if somebody off the street came and asked you, you know, gosh, I'm considering, you know, faith in Christ, and, and the, and, but I, I really struggle with the validity of the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible to be true? I hope you have three or four good reasons why you believe the Bible to be true. One is because it changed my life. Okay, One is that. Number two is it talks about stuff. It predicts things are going to happen in the future, and they actually happened. It's predictive. It says things are going to happen, and it happens in the future. It talks about stuff. It talks about locations, archaeological things that we really don't know about today. But yet, as archaeology has gone on, things have been discovered that validate the truth of the geography of the Bible. 
Those are three really good reasons why you should believe the Bible. Because it predicts stuff. It says stuff that we didn't know that we've discovered now is true. Okay? It changed my life. Therefore, I believe it to be valid. I was talking with some Mormon guys one time. And I said, you know, they were trying to convert me. And uh, they knew I was a pastor. In fact, I was sitting in my office at the church. And they came in, they sat down, and they said, hey, we were just at a meeting this morning, and the guys were telling us about this Baptist pastor that they converted to Mormonism. I said, really? I said, that's pretty impressive. This guy must not have believed what he was teaching then. And they said, I don't know, but man, we came here. uh, We wanted to talk to you. And so, oh, you wanted to convert me to Mormonism. They said, yeah. They were all fired up. They thought that was going to happen. And I said, well, let's talk. Let's talk. But what are we going to use as our basis for truth? Because I can tell you stuff and you can tell me stuff and, you know, who knows if it's true. What are we going to use for our basis of truth? You guys believe that there's several books that comprise your scriptures that you believe. And I believe that the Bible is true. You also believe the Bible is true. So therefore, can we use the Bible as our basis for truth? They said, oh, yeah, we can prove our position from the Bible. I said, great. I said, perfect. The reason I believe the Bible to be true is because it predicts things that were going to happen. And I named several of them for them. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, Isaiah's time, blah, this, that, that. Yeah, Tyre and Sidon, and that, uh, yeah. And I said, I said, now, in your scriptures, do you have anything there that validates the Book of Mormon? And one guy said this. He says, well, I think somewhere in there, it predicted that Columbus was going to discover America. Now, okay, here we go. I don't know if it says that or not, but the point is this. When was the Book of Mormon written? In the 60s. 1800s. 1800s. When was America discovered? 14, or in the 1800s. In the 1400s, right? 1492, discover, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? 1492. Now, would it be okay to predict in, in 1800 that something in 1600 happened? Could I write that in there and say, check that out? Yeah, it had already happened. And I told them that, and they go, oh, hadn't thought about that. Why do you believe what you believe? Okay, you have to have some reasons for believing that. Okay, reasonable faith. I call it reasonable faith. When I think about the creation of the world, okay, we have to have some conclusion about that, right? Where did the world come from? Why? Why do we believe that? It says so in the Bible. Why do we believe the Bible to be true? Because it's God's word. Because God's word. Okay, that's a, if that's the best we can come up with, good. However, most people would say, says who? And you would say, God. And they would say, I didn't, I, where does he say that it's true? Okay, no, that's not going to be a good reason, faith. I want you to know, you've got to have some reasons. Why? Because there's archaeological evidence that we didn't know. That gets, there's things that are predicted in the Bible that say that that's going to happen, and it happened. Okay? Have that stuff at the drop of a hat. Have that on you, because people that truly want to know, and this guy, this teacher comes to Jesus, he truly wants to know. He's not trying to make you look bad. He's not trying to make Jesus look bad. He wants to know. And there are people that we run into that want to know, and we are the best people to tell them what it's about. So have a reasoned faith. Why do we believe the world? Here's why I believe the world was created by God. Because when I look at it, I see a creator. When I look at my TV set, I don't just automatically think, you know, one day my living room was here. 
and I saw a bump in the floor, and I go, oh, wow, that's kind of weird. And a couple of days later, it got a little higher, and there was a black thing. And pretty soon it comes up, and I see a screen, and man, it just happened right out of the floor. When I see a TV, I think there's a TV maker somewhere. When I see a clock, I think there's a clock maker somewhere. When I see a door, there's a door maker somewhere. Only when it comes to human beings do we believe, and, the, and the world do we believe it happened out of nothing. It's reasonable to believe when you see signs of creation that there's a creator. That's the most reasonable thing to believe when you look at the human eye. And I want you to you know, and do a little research. There's a thing, I'm, I'm off the eye now. I'm back onto something else. There's human proteins in your cells that are conducted, they're moved with a thing called a flagellum motor. Okay? And it's got this little squirrely tail thing and it moves around and it does stuff. Now, when it is assembled, it has to be assembled in the proper order. Okay? It can't, it can't get assembled some other way and work. It can't be missing any of its parts. We call that irreducible complexity. When you see a mousetrap, you know, the little wooden mousetrap, every one of those parts is important. It will not operate without one of those parts being missing. Okay? It just won't. This flagellum motor is the same way. Every part is necessary for it to operate. When I see design like that, I think there's a designer. That didn't just happen. When I think about the complexity of my eye, it's not like I was walking around one day blind and said, you know, I'd like to see the world around me. I can't see. I don't even know there is a world around me. And so therefore I have a need and all of a sudden, oh, I had an eye. Gee, my depth perception is kind of funky. So I need two eyes. Ah, oh, now I have two eyes. That just doesn't seem reasonable to me. That evolution produced a thinking, living, breathing, reasoning human being. Okay? It just have some things in your, in your thing. That's why I believe in creation. Not because God said so. God said so, and that's true. But yet I have some reasons to believe why that's true. Okay? Reason faith. I could talk about that all day long. But let's move on to number two. He says this. Faith is built, number one, by loving God with all of my mind. Having reasons why I believe. Number two, by loving God with all my heart. Now, when I get to know God, there's this thing that happens. I have this appreciation for what he has done. When I look at the beauty of God in the world around me, I have appreciation for his creation. I have appreciation for what he's done in my life. And therefore, I express that in gratitude. When I start expressing gratitude, you know what gratitude grows into? Somebody does you enough favors often enough and, and you're thankful for them, pretty soon you start loving that person. You know, And this is a lousy analogy, so I'm not going to use it. But I think you'll get it. When Cindy came into my life, she did so many good things for me. And I was so appreciative of those things that I, I instantly loved her. I'm, I'm going to tell you that. I laid eyes on her and I loved her immediately. But my love grew deeper as she did things that I could express my appreciation for. Okay, you get it? It's not like I love her because she's a good cook. She's a good cook. But that's not the only reason I love her. But when that happens, when God does things for you, when he creates you, when he gives you a family, when he gives you a place to worship, when he gives you uh, resources, when he gives you a good life, don't you get appreciative of that? I hope you do. And that appreciation then translates into love. I love him. He's, he's so good to me. 
He takes such good care of me. And we do that with our human relationships, and we do it with our relationship with God. So when it says here, love him with all of our heart, what, we're, what, it, what Jesus is saying is, I want you to recognize what God has done for you. And I want you to express that in gratitude to him. And in that gratitude, you will find that you're loving him more and more and more. Now, how do you know who loves God and who doesn't? You don't. But how do you enhance your love for God? I'm going to give you one really good way here, and I've given you a couple already. But in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, Jesus is talking, and he's talking about this lady who has just anointed him with oil, and she's wiped his feet with her hair. And uh, you know, and you can imagine the people that are there in the room are going, hmm, that's kind of weird. And he says this, therefore I tell you, and they, and they say, they're thinking in their minds, boy, if he knew she, who she was, she's a great sinner. He doesn't know this. And if, if he knew who she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. You know, and isn't that the way we think? You know, if, if we, you know, people around us, gee, if they're bad, we want them away from us and all that kind of stuff. But this lady was bad and she anointed Jesus with oil. And here's what he said. He says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Boom. As her great love has shown Why did she do all this stuff for Jesus? Because she had been forgiven. And she loved him for that forgiveness. And here he says, and he he points a finger at all the people in the room who are casting doubt about this. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. How do you enhance your love for God? By recognizing the things that you've been forgiven of. And when you recognize what you deserved for what you did, and the forgiveness that comes from that, you cannot help but love him. So if you struggle with this thing, oh gosh, you know, I remember talking with a lady in church one time, and she says, you know, Mike, I don't know that I, I really love God. I said, oh, you need to do some introspection. You need to look and see what has God done for you. Well, he's given me a family. He's given me this. He's given me that. I said, number one thing he's given you is forgiveness. What do you deserve? And here's where we mess up. We mess up by thinking, you know what? I'm good enough. I'm good enough. Here's what you're good enough for. You're good enough to go to hell. You know, based on your own goodness, that's what you deserve. But God has sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for you so that he could forgive your sinfulness and so that you could be entered into heaven. Now, uh, our emotions should be engaged. Okay, our emotions should be engaged in our relationship with God. So many times we think, you know, our emotions need to be subsided and we need to mask them, we need to hide them. But I say God has created you with emotion. He created you with emotion so you could express your emotion to him. So let your love be known. Okay? Gratitude leads us to that love. In Hebrews 12, 28, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, talking about the faithful administration of God's justice to come, he said, let us be thankful. And when we are thankful, he says, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Okay? Let us be thankful. Thankfulness leads us to worship of God. Worship of God is an expression of our love for him. It says, let that progression there happen in your life. Okay? When we realize that God's love for us is unconditional, okay? no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you've been with, God's love is unconditional. He loves you nonetheless. In fact, when we recognize that, we ought to express our love for him. Have you ever had something hanging over your head, uh, you know, guilt or whatever it is, maybe somebody's going to find out something, and had that relieved? 
You know, maybe they found out, maybe it wasn't so bad as you thought it was going to be, and you just go, oh, I'm glad that's done with. That's what expressing our love for God is. When we recognize how much God loves us, when we come to the realization that we deserve God's justice, and then he shows us mercy, and we go, oh, that feels so good. It causes us to have nothing but love well up within us to express to him. Now, God shows us a really good lesson in Jeremiah chapter 29. This is an often quoted verse of scripture. And I'm going to just read 29:11 for you, and I know that you've heard it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And we use that often today to say things are going to be better for us in the future. The principle might be true, but this was a specific scripture applied to the children of Israel who had wandered far from God. They had worshipped idols. They had worshipped foreign gods. They had wandered far from God, and God had warned them, you're going to be taken captive by a foreign nation if you keep doing this. And so they kept doing it. And God said, okay, it's going to happen. They were taken captive. Okay, They're living in a foreign land. And Jeremiah is a prophet, and he comes while the children of Israel are in captivity, and this is what he says to them. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Man, what a relief that is. You know, but I want you to know that in verse 12, he says, Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. He says, you'll return. You'll return. The nation of Israel will return to me. And then I'll hear you. And he says in verse 13, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. When you seek me with all your heart, that's when you will find me. When we seek God half-heartedly, we don't find him. We don't find him. You know, because what we're seeking for is maybe a relief or a, a bonus or whatever it is. We're not really seeking God. But when you seek me with all your heart, sincerely, he says, that's when you will find me. Uh, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. He says, kids, you're taken captive now, but there's going to be a point in time where you come and you cry out to me, and I'm going to be there for you. That principle is true for us today. Now, just because we claim God's going to prosper us and has a plan for a future and blah, 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 and things are going to get better, that, that whole thing is contingent upon down here. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. That's the really important part of the scripture. Not the promise of some glorious future, but the promise that when you seek him sincerely, you will find him. So love God with all your heart. Number three, we grow in our faith when we love God with all of our soul. All of our soul. Now, the, the, the uh, Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. Nefesh. And what it refers to is the whole person. The whole person. Your, your entirety, okay? So love me with all of your soul, everything that's at the core of your being. Now, in the New Testament, it also refers to this part of me that's going to live forever, this eternal part of me. Love me with that part. Love me with your total being. Now, loving God with all of your soul, it means this, allowing God to define who and what you are. Allow God to define who and what you are, okay? 
Who am I as a person? Now, most of us, when we ask that question, and I think we ought to ask the question, but we ought to have a reasoned response to that, would say, okay, my name is Mike. And they say, oh, a little deeper than that. Come on. And I would say, okay, well, I'm pastor at Marina Church. I'm the husband of Cindy and uh, the dad to two kids, uh, Jenny and Jared. And I live in Fairfield. And, and, and they say, no, no, really, who are you? And I'd have to go a little deeper. And I'd say, well, here's, what my, here's my character. And I would describe my character. I'm not going to describe it for you. Okay? You might say, oh, okay. But now, I would describe my character. Now, what we're going to do if we love God with all of our soul, what we're going to do is allow God to describe our character. Now, if God was going to describe your character, how would he describe you? Would he describe you as faithful? Would he describe you as loyal? Would he describe you as loving? And I want you to make a list of what God would describe your character to be. Now, most of us would be very harsh on ourselves. So that's why we need to read the Bible. Because the Bible describes our Christian character. And I want you to make that list. Okay? God does declare you what? Faithful. God does declare you loyal. When we are in him, we are faithful, we are loyal, we are loving, we are sacrificial. We are all the stuff that he describes us to be. So let that define you. And once it does define you, that, let that be what you live by. Okay? Live by that. God has described you as that. Let, let that be who you are. Now, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and I love this passage of scripture because uh, Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Now, that word sanctify you through and through means make you more and more and more and more like Jesus all the time, more and more like God. Okay, let him sanctify you through and through at the core of your being. You're going to have to do some self-examination. You're going to have to do some introspection. You're going to have to do some some correcting. You're going to have to do some stuff. Okay, so let God sanctify you. And he says this, may your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be a time where he returns. He says, may your spirit, your soul and your body. Now, he describes us as three part being right. Now, what's your body? That's what you see in the mirror every morning, okay? You get out of the shower and you stand before the mirror. And you go, oh dear, hurry. Get some clothes on, okay? Okay, that's our body, okay? I'm not going to comment on that. But he says there's your spirit. Now, he says there's your spirit and your soul. How do those two things differentiate? Okay, I'm going to tell you. Your spirit is your mind, how you think, what you think, your will, what you decide to do with that, and your emotions, how you feel about that stuff. So let's call that your soul. Your spirit now is that part of you that will live for eternity. So let God sanctify your body. Make sure you take care of it. Okay, take care of it. Treat it like he says you should treat it. Why? Because why, do, why should we be health nuts and avoid chocolate cake? I want you to know I haven't had a chocolate cake in months. Okay, yeah, I'm struggling. Okay, why should we take care of our bodies? Because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's where God lives. It's where the Holy Spirit dwells. That's why I should take care of it. Good reason. Okay, have a reason for that. Okay, what about the way we think, what we think about, how we feel about it, and what we decide to do? Let God take care of that stuff. Let God determine what you think about. Let God determine how you feel about it. You know, we're good with emotions, aren't we? And we often think, well, gee, that is the way I feel. I'm angry, so it's okay for me to express my anger. Well, is that right? You know, a lot of pop 
psychologists would say, yeah, that's right. But what would Paul tell us? He would say this. He says, be angry, but don't sin. Be angry, but don't sin. How do you do that? Okay, you have to have a reason now. Be angry at the right things. Don't be angry with the people around you. Be angry about the source of evil in the world. Be angry at Satan. Be angry at the devil. Be angry at that. Be angry at what he causes people to do. Do not, do not be angry with the people. That's how you be angry and don't sin. We might call it righteous indignation. Okay? So he says, make sure that God sanctifies the way you think, what you think about, how you feel. Because what you believe will determine what you, how you feel. Did you know that? Your belief determines how you feel. If you believe that I'm here for your good, you'll like me. If you think I'm here to beat you up and make you feel guilty, you won't like me. Because it's dependent upon what you believe about me. Okay? So you might believe true about me and you might not believe true about me. And it causes emotions. So make sure you believe truth so that your emotions are correct. Then he says this. And love God with all of your, with all of your uh, may your whole spirit, your soul and body be kept blameless. Okay? So let your soul be kept blameless. That part of you that's going to live forever. That part of you that needs to be regenerated. Be made new. Let that part be made new. Let that be the center of where God lives in your soul that affects your body, that affects your mind. Let it dwell within you. Let it be you so that it affects the way you eat, the way you act, the way you think, the way you feel. Okay, let that be the center. Okay, number four. Okay, we can grow our faith by loving God with all of my strength. Now, strength, when you read that, I want you to think strength is what I do with my body. Okay, if I have strength, I can stand up, I can sit down, I can move left, I can move right, I can walk to the back door, I can do whatever. So when I love God with all my strength, I'm loving God with what I do with my body. Okay? Um, now, how we respond to situations in life goes back to what? How we believe, okay? what we believe, how we feel, and then what we do. So in the situations of life, we have to make sure that we believe correctly so that we can love God with all of our strength so that we move in the right direction and do the right things. The good, the bad, and everything in between is a test for us to express to God how much we love him. Okay? When thing, bad things happen, we think, oh, God's not shining on me. He's punishing me. No. Reason that out. Think about that. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? So that he can be made known through their life. When bad things happen to you, when bad things happen to me, it gives us a chance to express our trust in God even in the bad times of life. I trust him. I know that he's going to get me through to the other side. And I know that what he wants to have done here is for him to become visible. So I want people to know that I trust what he's doing. And I want them to know he's right here. He's beside me. People asked at, at 9-11, where was God? Oh, he was all over that. He was all over it. But we have to have eyes to see. And so therefore, we need to sometimes help people see this stuff. And that's where our strength comes in. Okay? James 3, 14 through 17 says this. Great passage of scripture. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Let me read that again. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? What's the implied answer there? No, no, that faith can't save them. Now notice he goes on in verse 15, and I've read through this, so I know. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food, okay? A brother or sister, they have need. 
And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. Okay, what would we say to them today? We'd say, hey, have a nice day. Okay, they have no clothes, they have no food, they have no place to sleep. Hey, have a nice day. And we think that's, God bless you. Uh, we, might, we might even say that, right? God bless you. And we think we're being spiritual. Now notice what he says, okay? Uh, but if someone says you go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not, uh, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Dead. It produces no life. Faith without action is meaningless. Okay? So our faith has to, be, has to be grown by our strength to do what God has asked us to do. Now, my vision is that the people around us would know this church. They would know this church. And they would know that we are people who love God because we loved them. Okay? We loved them. And therefore, they know that, that we love God them and they say wow that is just uncommon that a church would do something kind and nice to me you know and i think that happens to with us all the time but it's kind of under the under the radar we don't maybe get known by what we do because we're humble right and we don't want to be braggarts and we don't want people to be drawn attention to us and all that stuff but we need to find a way to express what we've done giving praise to god for it Not praise to ourselves, not praise to the church, but praise to the God who loved us and gave us the opportunity to love someone else. Okay, we need to find ways to do that. We need to be able to tell people about that. You know what my church did the other day? They did da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, and simply because God loved us and we loved this person. That's why we do that. And I want it to be known. I want it to be known. I want us to be known by our love, not by what we believe as much as by our love. In fact, in conclusion, uh, the early Latin writer Tertullian of Carthage um, declared that one thing that converted him to Christianity was not the arguments they gave him, because he could find a counterpoint for every argument they would present. But they demonstrated something I didn't have, he said. The thing that converted me to Christianity was the way they loved each other. You know, we think that we have to argue people, we have to do all this stuff. I want you to have reasons for what you believe. But the arguments there probably, if it's not accompanied with love, comes to no good end. Therefore, our love for God needs to be expressed in our love for people. And that will cause them to say, there's something different about them. There's something different about that church. I need to find out what it is. And it's because God first loved us. that gave us the opportunity to love him back, grow in our faith, by shaping our minds, loving God with all of our mind, by loving God with all of our heart, by loving God with all of our soul, and loving God with all of our strength. That's how our faith, our trust in him grows, and that's how love gets made known.